Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. All right, good morning everybody. Uh, we've got slightly earlier seminars uh, this trimester, um, but at least we've managed to get ourselves some drinks and snacks and so on, which is, which is good. So to kick us off, I, I thought it would be appropriate, even if no one else did, uh, to <laughs> dragoon um, Caitlin and Lou into, into doing this uh, seminar today. Do I need to introduce the two of you? Not particularly. So, Caitlin Burns, Director of the Griffith Asian Institute. Uh, Luke Cabrera is Associate Professor with the Griffith Asian Institute and the uh, Government of International Relations here at Griffith. Uh, today, they're going to be talking about social enterprise and regional citizenship in ASEAN. I'm very pleased putting another, one of my hats on as uh, one of the co-editors of Australian Journal of International Affairs that you've published recently on this, and we're very grateful for you sending in the paper, and we're really glad to see it out. Uh, in the journal. So thanks for the support for the journal and um, over to you. Okay, so uh, I'll kick off and uh, really nice to see everyone. Thank you Ian for reconvening us in person. It feels weird um, but, but good to be back in person and to be able to share research again, albeit at a slightly different time which uh, saves us some of our dilemmas around food and social uh, health how we handle food in our new environment. Um, before I begin, let me first acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, the Turrbal and Jagera peoples, and pay my respect to elders past and present. I'm really pleased to be here and to be sitting next to Lou, and I've got the easy job. I'm going to really do a bit of an introduction and set the scene, uh, and Lou's going to delve into the guts of of this study that we, we were engaged in on social enterprise and regional citizenship in ASEAN. Um, I guess to begin with, in saying that we're setting the context, I think that this is an example, and it's something that Griffith Asia Institute can do quite well, but it is an example of engagement, informing and leading research, um, and something that potentially we're able to think about and, and to work with within uh, through, through the GAI platform. So in late 2017, uh, Lou and I saw an opportunity to apply for funding through the Australia ASEAN Council. It was actually an extraordinary grant round. The, ASEAN, the Australia ASEAN Council releases annual grant rounds every year, usually in the beginning of the year. Um, this was an extraordinary round and it was intended to align to the timing of the ASEAN Australia Leaders Summit that was to be held in March 2018. So essentially the Council was looking for opportunities to improve people-to-people -people relations, to elevate uh, I guess the visibility of Australia's engagement with the nations of Southeast Asia ahead of this Leaders Summit that was ultimately hosted in Sydney. It's worth noting, I think, from the outset that the AAC, the Australia ASEAN Council, is one of several bilateral slash regional foundations, institutes and councils. It sits within uh, the foreign policy portfolio. It, it, the, together, these foundations, institutes and councils make up what might be a kind of hybrid version of cultural relations, of Australian cultural relations. I say cultural relations but in fact it's more strategic 
the new traditional variety of cultural relations that's um, implemented, say, by the British Council or the Goethe Council, insofar as it is administered by, it is funded by, and it works to the objectives set by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So it's not really an arm's length kind of operation that you might see from other, from other nations. Um, each of these foundations, and some of them have been around for a long time, including the Australia-Japan Foundation, 1970s, is headed up by a board of eminent Australians. They tend to be people from the business community as well as academics, and that was certainly no exception in the case of the AAC, which uh, is headed up by Christine Holgate. The Australia ASEAN Council, interestingly, is one of the more recently established of these. It, it was a consolidation of several other smaller uh, foundations. Notably, the Australia India Indonesia Institute has remained as a separate a separate entity, um, but it does signal the Australian government's increasing emphasis on placing ASEAN within its foreign policy discourse and looking at opportunities for improving engagement. I think there are some interesting things to explore there. Uh, I think it actually, in establishing this council, I think that gives us some insights into the way that Australia thinks about its region. Uh, I think there is a, a potentially a fundamental misunderstanding within our policy landscape about what ASEAN is. I think the Australian government policymakers tend to be using ASEAN as a collective noun for the nations of Southeast Asia rather than thinking about it as a political construct. But I'm going to handle some of that discussion over to Lou. Um, essentially, the Australia ASEAN Foundation's mission is to increase knowledge and promote Australia's interests in Southeast Asia by initiating and supporting activities to, under, to enhance understanding and build links between the people and institutions in Australia and the 10 nations of ASEAN, the 10 Southeast Asian nations of ASEAN. Um, now, when you look at, at the kind of priorities that are set out by the Council, they are fairly specific in that they're interested in building people-to-people -people links, they're interested in cultural relations, but they're also, they've also really specifically identified science, education, um, online activities, digital engagement, entrepreneurship as some of the priority areas that we they want to look at. So Lou and I, in... Uh, constructing a proposal that might be attractive and appealing to the council, thought that we would focus in on this idea of online social entrepreneurs um, and, and craft a project that would bring online social entrepreneurs together from across ASEAN. We were aiming from, for a reasonable spread from across Southeast Asia. Uh, to bring them together here in Queensland with some Australian Queensland social entrepreneurs uh, to talk about how they leverage digital technologies to actually engage in social development activities and how they see their connection to ASEAN. And that's, I think, where some of the interesting research came out in terms of those conversations. Social entrepreneurship we took as the creation of self-sustaining businesses and uh, non-government organisations that have a strong social purpose. We're aware that, that social entrepreneurship has really taken off across Southeast Asia over the last, over recent years, of course, as well as in Australia. And we were really looking at, at, at where were the points of synergy and um, 
and connection and what could social entrepreneurs from Australia and Southeast Asia learn from each other. That was probably the fundamental basis of the project. When we proposed the application, we hadn't really gone so far as to set out a specific line of study and that, I think, you know, it was very much an inductive approach and, and we came to that uh, as a result of the conversations we had with the participants through this grant but also then through other people that we connected with subsequently. I'm going to hand over to Lou to really talk about kind of the more academic uh, concepts that sit within this study and how we landed on this idea of, of uh, regional citizenship sort of based on social entrepreneurship and what that means for and says about the way social entrepreneurs see and engage with this construct of ASEAN. I'd like to come back at the end because one of the things I'm really keen to do is put together a policy brief that reflects on the learnings from our research um, but informs the way that policymakers in Australia think about the connection between Australia and Southeast Asia, particularly through this lens of ASEAN, uh, and how you know these connections might be more productively made and sustained over time. But that's where I'll be asking for some input from the group. Great. Thanks very much. So as, as Caitlin says, this um, it was inductive in that um, when you apply for one of these grants, you have to speak to the objectives of the funding agency. And those, in this case, they weren't necessarily narrowly academic objectives. So we, we knew we couldn't just propose something you know, with hypotheses and, and uh, you know, specify what we're going to investigate and what we think we might find. It had to be um, broader and more clearly engaged than that. So that, um, it makes for an interesting project. It, uh, it allows you to get out there and, and speak to people. But also at the end of the day, you're, you're then uh, left with data that you have to sort of figure out what to do with. And um, it was, it's not a bad problem to have. So I'm going to talk about what we end up doing with the data and what we're able to uh, ascertain from it. So I'll talk about the aims of the study. I'll offer a background and a rubric of citizenship that ended up um, helping us frame our discussion. I'll look at ASEAN's conception of regional citizenship, the one they're increasingly promoting. And then I'll talk about the focus groups we did, the field work with ASEAN social entrepreneurs, and then findings from those entrepreneurs related to regional citizenship specifically. We had other findings. And then I'll offer just very brief conclusions and turn it back over to Caitlin. Okay, so the aims of the study, when we, we had our data, we had engaged with these very bright, very interesting, uh, young, inspiring social entrepreneurs from all around Southeast Asia and from Queensland as well. And, um, and then we, we had our data, we had it transcribed, we, we coded it, we looked at what we had, um, and we decided that what we could do is, is engage and intervene in the emerging literature on comparative regional citizenship. So regional organizations are increasingly uh, explicitly promoting regional citizenship. And we thought the um, data that we had could say something interesting in those dialogues. So we wanted to show how an alternate, alternative approach which takes a more comprehensive view of what regional citizenship might be, uh, can help us to identify and enable comparisons between alternative non-organizational conceptions of re regional citizenship, uh, like the one we found our um, interlocutors expressing in, uh, in various ways. And we also wanted to highlight the potential significance 
of such alternative conceptions, of which there are more than just the one we found. So, a little bit of background. This, of course, is ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Ten nation states there in this beautiful, brightly colored map. That gives you a real clear idea of its, uh, its extent, but also why it makes sense for these particular nation states to join together. It was formed in 1967, initially only by Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and the Philippines, and five others on that map subsequently joined. It was initially focused fairly narrowly on managing regional tensions, regional conflict. This was at the time of the, uh, the U.S. war in Vietnam. Um, there was a lot, a, lot of other thing, a lot of other things going on, some, some border conflicts. Um, over time, it's, become, it's adopted more ambitious development great, uh, goals, trade, governance aims, though progress is halting, as any observer of ASEAN will likely tell you. The, um, the, the sort of trite thing to say about ASEAN is that it hasn't achieved its aims. That's, um, that's a very common refrain in the literature. There are some who are pushing back on that, saying there's more than meets the eye there, uh, but you'll see a lot of that. So we wanted to look at regional citizenship. Again, ASEAN is one of several regional organizations now explicitly promoting a conception of regional citizenship. The EU, of course, formalized regional citizenship in the Treaty of Maastricht, 1993, it took effect. Uh, but we also have seen a formal regional citizenship charter in ECOWAS at the bottom, the Economic Community of West African States. In uh, Mercosur is moving toward a regional charter. It actually has a regional uh, free movement and residency agreement involving several states where their, their citizens can uh, move and live and work in other states in the, uh, in the region. And then ASEAN is, uh, much, has much more limited uh, mobility provisions, but is beginning to talk very explicitly about ASEAN citizens and what it means to be an ASEAN citizen. Okay, so researchers have begun to investigate and compare these emergent citizenship regimes in each organization, but the existing research is fairly limited in scope. It, it typically looks at a limited range of variables, regional migration and residency variables, and some citizenship acquisition variables, which is a, a fairly prominent issue in ECOWAS. So we wanted to consider broader sets of variables to get a more comprehensive sense of the regimes emerging and also the alternatives to the formal citizenship regimes which might be able to influence those in various ways. So we offered a rubric for regional citizenship. Now full disclosure, this is based on something I've uh, used before in the global citizenship context, but we adapted it for the regional context and, and expanded it a bit. So it disaggregates the, the basic concept of citizenship into six elements. Each is centered on norms or broad understandings of what citizenship is and should be that are promoted by the organizations themselves. So we're not coming in with an idea of what citizenship is, we're looking at elements of citizenship and how each different organization would fill in those elements. And there are quite significant differences across organizations. So it's intended to enable broad conceptual comparisons across these emerging citizenship regimes and the alternatives. Okay, so here's the rubric just very quickly. Uh, element number one is an understanding of the nature of the agents acting as regional citizens. Are they individual citizens of member states? Are they representatives of societal groups? Different conceptions have different ways of visualizing who the citizen agent should be. 
an understanding of what binds them together. This is very important. So whether it's common governance institutions, you know, the fact that there is an ASEAN, uh, whether it's regional identity and history, ASEAN does make something of that, cultural affinities, uh, sometimes religious affinities, geography by itself, um, and the, um, the similarities in the way countries have developed, you know, agriculturally and etc. Number three is an understanding of the rights that are or should be acknowledged as being held by regional citizen agents. And these, again, will vary quite substantially. Number four is an understanding of the primary duties of citizenship. And, and ASEAN foregrounds duties, as we'll see. And then the presumed substance of citizenship. This is a little more complex. This is um, when leaders of the organizations, of the states, talk about what a good regional citizen would do. They're referring typically to the, sub, the presumed substance of cis, citizenship. So it should be, it could be common regional governance aims that they're promoting, could be fundamental interests or rights, the way you hear European Union leaders um, speak about in Mercosur to some extent. It could be ideals of community, reciprocity or justice, ideals to be promoted, associated with a cultural or other identity. And, and I would argue that the ASEAN way is at least promoted by the organization as an identity, as an identity to be adopted by the citizens, something to orient their identity. I am an adherent to the ASEAN way. And it, so it provides core guidance on good citizen action. What is a good citizen? Someone who seeks to advance the substance of citizenship as we have defined it. And finally, the status and institutions of citizenship. So these are, can be very straightforward. They can include the political institutions that actually back the duties and rights and seek to promote the substance. Uh, but they're also equal citizen status, representatives of, such as um, regional passports or the cover on your passport having a regional stamp as is increasingly emerging. It could be um, something like the ASEAN lines at uh, the airport where you can go through more quickly. Um, other organizations have adopted those too. Um, so, and other trappings of full citizen membership, things that mark you as a citizen. Okay. So what is ASEAN's conception of regional citizenship? Well, as I mentioned, uh, we are seeing it increasingly explicitly promoted by the organization. So, for example, uh, the organization funded a poll of ASEAN citizens, and it, it mentioned ASEAN the, the phrase ASEAN citizen, I think, 23, 24 times within the poll itself. And, and the aim was to find out what do ASEAN citizens really think of ASEAN. Uh, you know, and it was very broad. It's, um, it's not do they want a democratic ASEAN parliament or something like that. It was more like, you know, do they approve of ASEAN in this way, in this way, in this way? Do they know about ASEAN? Um, but we thought it was interesting because they're using this language of ASEAN citizens. And again, you've got a podcast that ASEAN is funding in conversation with ASEAN citizens, finding exemplars of good citizenship action and talking to them, promoting the podcast on, their, on ASEAN's organizational social media sites, Facebook, etc. So ASEAN citizens, within this conception, which is also promoted through a new ASEAN magazine, um, and where the, um, the leader of, uh, of the, uh, the unit tasked with engaging ASEAN citizens speaks to, to what he thinks it is. ASEAN secretary um, speaks to what he thinks it is, uh, and they're, they're bound up to the ASEAN way. So 
from what we have found, and this is a very preliminary investigation, but ASEAN citizens, according to the organization, are primarily holders of citizenship. They're individuals who hold citizenship in the 10 states, but they're also bound together by ties of culture and geography and by adherence to the ASEAN way. Duties are foregrounded to support ASEAN aims and the ASEAN way mode of governance, and that is focused on norms of consensus, presumed norms of consensus, among elite decision makers and non-interference in regional domestic politics. So it's very distinctive. So we find implied duties of good citizenship, for example, to support the aims and modes of ASEAN governance in publicity for the annual ASEAN Prize. Uh, this was instituted a few years ago. You get $20,000 US if you win it. And it's meant to recognize, quote, inspiring achievements of ASEAN citizens anchored upon the commitment of ASEAN Secretariat and member states who share mutual aspirations to acknowledge ASEAN citizens and institutions' exemplary contribution in fostering ASEAN identity, promoting ASEAN spirit, and upholding the ASEAN way. So very duty-centric, very duties-focused, these are the things that good citizens do. They don't uh, claim their explicit rights, they don't uh, make other kinds of demands, they observe duties to advance ASEAN's own aims. So what are some alternatives to this? Well, one very prominent in the literature is the conception of a, a participatory regionalism that Amitabh Acharya started developing in the late 90s, early 2000s. And he was looking at some of the uh, progress toward democratization in various ways among some of the member states in ASEAN and other regions. And he was saying, you know, um, this is opening spaces for what could be a more participatory regionalism, where civil society groups could play a greater role in regional co-governance. Not, not some full democratic um, conception, but uh, a shared governance, shared aims, advancing them together where civil society has greater influence and, and meaningful input in ASEAN and also Mercosur and elsewhere. It's embedded in it is an implicit conception of regional citizenship that we talk about where citizen actors are civil society representatives rather than just every individual and rights to participate are foregrounded, rights to participate in co-governance, in, in set, helping to set the agenda, helping to execute it. Okay, Our alternative that we identified from our engagement with the social entrepreneurs was entrepreneurial regional citizenship. And it's not surprising. We had a sense that um, that's where we might be headed because we've seen social entrepreneurship, social enterprise, increasingly foregrounded in citizenship dialogue. So especially in Western Europe, the United States, um, where many states have highlighted the role of social enterprise. They often where a more conservative government takes power, they say we've got to shrink the welfare state, we've got to shrink government, and part of doing that is helping people you know, help themselves, and that's what social entrepreneurs do. So they'll really height the highlight the role of social enterprise in helping to fill social welfare gaps. They'll say that's appropriate, that's the right mode, not having government do everything for everybody. That's kind of the rhetoric. Um, as and these, this rhetoric arises as state provision is reduced, social entrepreneurs and some other actors have thus become central to dialogues on domestic citizenship as ones who are ascribed special responsibility for the welfare of co-citizens in more bottom-up conceptions of citizenship. So as, as these states, as, as more conservative governments shrink the welfare state, they say we need um, people to help themselves Social entrepreneurs are people who are helping people to help themselves. They're, they're the kind of individuals who we want to highlight as doing the right thing. And you'll see a lot of that rhetoric in um, ASEAN as well, where you say private individuals um, helping promote development. So that's the 
that's at least the dialogue that you see a lot out there. So we wanted to look, we wanted to engage social entrepreneurs in the ASEAN region to explore their possible roles in a conception of regional citizenship and to see if they really thought about regional citizenship in any way. If they were in contact with people in other countries, they were engaged in networks, they were supporting one another in various ways. So we centered on digitally focused entrepreneurs uh, because they're really on the cutting edge and uh, because of the unique scalability of their enterprises and also links to conceptions of digital citizenship which are also prominent in literature on citizenship usually in terms of ways in which states or schools can engage individual citizens through digital technology and teach them things um, or, or have them engage in, in various aspects of governance but we looked at um, people who you know everything from People who have a website that's selling uh, items, you know, fish, uh, traditional fish sauce in uh, Vietnam where they uh, employ local women and in, in the traditional methods of creating fish sauce and they sell it on a website to people who have, um, you know, uh, a site where you can get a micro loan with uh, collateral, let's say you've got a watch or a, a nice mobile phone or something, you simply send their site a picture of that item, it automatically tells you how much collateral you can get for it, how much of a loan you can get for it, and arranges for the loan, you know, that kind of sophisticated app, to agricultural apps that farmers can use, apps that fishers can use, really impressive um, enterprises. So we brought them to Brisbane. This is what we used to look like before the pandemic. <laughs> um, and we had focus groups. So Caitlin and I split the uh, participants into focus groups. We mixed the Queensland participants with the Southeast Asia ones. So we had seven ASEAN region entrepreneurs, six from Queensland. And then we did follow-up interviews in person and remotely with five other ASEAN region digital entrepreneurs. We did background and informal interviews at several ASEAN meetings in, in Kuala Lumpur. I did some interviews in Jakarta that were related. So we, we, we got a fair bit of context for this. Our findings, just to cut to the chase, were uh, threefold. So the third are the most significant for this, but we, uh, they had some real insights relating to their distinctive contributions to co-citizens um, in resource-limited developing countries. So where the, um, in, in Western Europe, in North America, you'll see social enter enterprise again framed as something that people should be doing because the state shouldn't be in the business of taking care of everybody. Here, um, their perception, their interpretation was that often states are resource-limited. They don't, they, even if they wanted to, they don't have the resources to take care of everybody. So a huge, sprawling state such as Indonesia which has intense, you know, incredible wealth, but also a lot of people who are living very close to the margins. And uh, one of our, uh, one of the sets of entrepreneurs we interviewed have a, um, a digital health app that allows people to get remote treatment, people on remote islands to be able to get treatment that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get through the National Health Service. Um, they also had insights about a conception of citizenship which is duty-centric, so they feel they, they would foreground duty, the duties element, but it also places a lot of significant, uh, significance on the agency and decision-making and actions of individual citizen entrepreneurs. They say, you know, um, I'm really good at doing this thing that I do and I can really help God 
government. Some were working with their governments. Some hadn't been encouraged by their governments. Um, but then the ones we focused on were insights on existing regional networking by social entrepreneurs. They actually are engaged in a lot of networking with others in the ASEAN region. And they have a real sense of the potential for their digitally driven social enterprises to be scaled up regionally. Some are already expanding. Um, and for such enterprises to influence some areas of member state and ASEAN development governance. ASEAN spends a lot of energy and, and effort on bringing social entrepreneurs together, bringing entrepreneurs together at uh, big meetings. And um, their thought was that as ASEAN continues to become more robust in the development space, that their good ideas could help ASEAN achieve its own aims. Okay, so views on regional citizenship, some of them were very explicit. Some of them hadn't given it as much thought, but some of them already felt that they were acting as regional citizens in some ways. So our Philippines footwear representative um, notes that she has already been engaged with helping other entrepreneurs, uh, sharing what she knows about getting an, uh, an enterprise going. So in that sense, I'd like to believe I'm trying to be a good regional citizen as much as I can. It's as simple as providing support and promoting the advocacies of other social entrepreneurs or your counterparts in ASEAN countries, sharing with, with key people you've met, um, can already be a good thing. At some point, if we're going to be one economic market, you'd have to have similar policies that are applicable to all ASEAN countries. So she talked about some of the uh, meetings that she's gone to, ASEAN and other meetings, where she's engaged with other social entrepreneurs, learned from them, shared what she knows. And um, so we see that as a significant practice. The Thai, um, the representative of the Thai, uh, Thai agricultural enterprise, he was very impressive. He'd uh, gone off to MIT and uh, done a master's in, in um, you know, a really advanced uh, engineering area and decided that he needed to come back and start a social enterprise rather than go off and make a lot of money somewhere. And he's actually talked uh, several of his former classmates into coming back with him and contributing to this enterprise. So they actually help farmers with an app that tells them what the micro weather is going to be. It helps them know when exactly they should plant and, and how to improve their crops and how to, uh, it helps them get things to market. So he feels like uh, he's got a lot that he can share with ASEAN, with his own government. So for him, for him ASEAN's a bit like EU. You have to collaborate, feel the other countries are like your brothers and sisters in terms of you don't only develop Thailand, but you develop other, other countries as well. And he is expanding that enterprise into other regional countries. So he says, I think ASEAN people feel their neighbors. Thailand and Indonesia feel we're closer than Thailand and China, even though geographically China's closer. Okay. And there were a few other views like that, including some which we're talking about. Um, uh, an interesting role for social entrepreneurs in what they call the democratization of society, of uh, you know enabling everyone to contribute to development and agenda setting. So what emerges is a conception of regional citizenship whose chief actors would be social entrepreneurs, foregrounds duties to contribute to domestic and regional development, but also highlights the independent agency exercised by social entrepreneurs. So where does that leave us? Um, we do not make strong uh, claims that this is the new way to participatory regionalism, this should replace participatory regionalism. We simply say one implication is that because ASEAN itself is putting so much effort and so much energy and, and expense uh, relatively into advancing entrepreneurship and also advancing social entrepreneurship, that some of these really impressive projects could actually influence the way ASEAN does development. And then, if, if, big if, over time, uh, if we see sort of that renewed push 
toward broader democratization in the region if um, participatory regionalism of some sort becomes more possible or more advanced, more meaningful, uh, then something like the practices identified by these social entrepreneurs, the views promoted by them, could influence that, could be a complement to that. So we see this as not some full comprehensive alternative conception of regional citizenship that should replace ASEAN citizenship. We see it as a possible influence on ASEAN citizenship, especially in terms of the agency that individual entrepreneurs are able to exercise because they have the brain power and they can give ASEAN what it would like to see. So I will turn it back over to Kate. Okay. Um, thanks so much, Lou. And I guess on that note, what I'm interested in doing, I think this uh, project, and I should say we had this project run very soon after another project. We were successful in the earlier round of ASEAN, uh, Australia ASEAN Council funding. Um, and with a colleague from AEL, I was involved in a very similar study, but working with cultural practitioners, cultural and arts practitioners. Again, we had practitioners from just about every nation across Southeast Asia. Um, we had been working with these practitioners for about 18 months in different ways, and we were interested in understanding uh, their views on advocacy uh, and diplomacy through people-to-people -people links via culture and the arts. Um, so, so in some ways there were two parallel studies. I'm interested in, in what these kinds of studies and these engagements actually tell us about, the, about our, Australia's relationship with ASEAN, about ASEAN more broadly, the conception of ASEAN, and how people, citizens, particularly if you go to that point of the individual citizen as agent, how they view ASEAN from within. And what does that mean in terms... What's that then iterative process of engagement? Um, my sense is that, first and foremost, there are learnings that I continuously missed because this part of the pro this part of uh, the grant funding process is actually quite rare. These these grant funding um, opportunities don't tend to fund academic research, and they certainly don't tend to engage in kind of reflexive research about the process, how it fits the objectives, and and what it actually what are the outcomes and impact. Um, so I think first and foremost there is a, a gap in how we engage and, and reflect on uh, points of engagement with ASEAN. And I think that we can demonstrate that there's value in doing that. Um, so that's number one. I think number two, uh, much of the, the funding proposal uh, these funding proposal opportunities, while they're based out of the foundations, cultural and co foundations, councils and institutes as this quasi-cultural relations program, people-to-people -people engagement, they are set against a strategic backdrop in which Australia, you know, is pushing for ASEAN at the centre of the Indo-Pacific, seeking to kind of consolidate an ASEAN view on strategic political and diplomatic issues, uh, as well as tap into economic benefits of the ASEAN market and, and promote those kinds of benefits. There is a gap in how we understand and contribute to the agency of citizens in ASEAN, or, or enable... There is a gap in the way that we think about the space we allow for citizen-to-citizen -citizen engagement. Um, 
without necessarily instrumental uh, objectives or outcomes. And I think that's something that is missing from as the Australian approach to engagement um, more broadly in the region. Um, and I think we've, we have a tendency, because the language, because our, I think our, our in-depth understanding of the region is limited, we have a tendency to grab onto ideas like ASEAN and to use those as a very simplified notion of, of engagement with the region. One of the things I think is interesting, even with the kind of discussion from our participants, and we had similar discussion with our other group, about this notion of ASEAN neighbourliness, understanding we are part of ASEAN, you know, within that, that ASEAN broad propaganda of socio-cultural community, many of our participants hadn't necessarily visited each other's countries. We did have a Thai participant sitting next to, in, in the cultural situation, we had a, sorry, Vietnamese sitting next to a Thai participant sitting next to a Cambodian, who actually, this was the first opportunity that they had as individuals to talk with uh, citizens from neighbour countries. They had travelled to Rio, they had travelled to the US, they'd travelled to Paris, all on externally funded programs, but they hadn't actually been connected to each other in region. I think there's something, there's something in that um, that, that could be developed. Um, I'll leave it at that. I'm, I am interested, so these are, these are loose thinkings in terms of how do we actually take some of the insights um, from this work, and, we, and, and it's unlikely that policymakers are going to want to delve too deeply into the distinctions between participatory regionalism and entrepreneurial regional citizenship but I do think that there are important learnings um, for the way that we understand and engage and promote engagement um, with the region. One other thing I might point out also on the identity piece. Um, again, within this broad umbrella of ASEAN, ha and having the opportunity to look across two different studies, what came through to me implicitly is that identity with sector, identity with entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, or identity as a, with my cultural sector as an arts and cultural practitioner was far stronger than identity with my regional, my, the, the ASEAN region. And I think there's also something there in terms of the way that we view and, and tap into various identity groups. I'll leave it there. I'd really love some thoughts on that because I don't know that I've articulated it well. Um, but we are turning this into a policy brief. So if you have thoughts, I'd welcome them. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.